Let's go ahead and let's pray. Let's spend a little bit of time in the word and then, uh, yeah, and, and see what the Lord has for us. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We just ask, Father, that as we look into the text and as we think about the things that are found here, uh, that you would just be honored and glorified and that we would think of you correctly. We would think of you in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you. We thank you and love you so very much. And uh, we just ask that you would be glorified by the way that we think this morning. In your son's name, amen. So this past week, uh, a lot of things happened inside of the, the church. And there was an essay written by Al Mohler that I thought was really good. I, I only share this only to give you context of what he's about ready to say, because it's really what he says is really profound, especially for our text. Uh, but but there's been some pretty big scandal in the Southern Baptist Church this past week. Humongous. And uh, this was Al Mohler's call to repentance to the Southern Baptist Church. And uh, I, I think he makes this really profound statement. So I just give that just through the context. But, but this is what he says in the article. He says, A second truth is that horrible evil and serious crimes are often hidden within religious contexts precisely because the same contexts provide opportunity and camouflage. Now, he's talking about a particular issue that is really bad. But he makes this really big point that I think is really important. It's this idea of a religious context or a church context that provides opportunity and camouflage for things that are bad and things that we may call not good, right? It's not necessarily evil, but it's not good. And what, what we do, and, and coming together on Sundays, and meeting together, th- th- this sometimes offers a camouflage for other things. We, we can easily do something and say, well, I went to church today, but then there's this other evil thing that happens, but you can camouflage it by, but at least I went to church church at least I did this at least I did that and so there's this context now I got to be honest in talking about this subject I am was telling Chuck before uh, the whole service I am petrified this is one of those subjects that keeps me up when I have to talk about I think it's important but we're going to talk about somebody's motivation And Solomon has one of these texts, which is, this is better than that. And I don't want to mislead you. And and, and as I I think about what I'm about ready to talk about, there's a couple things that I think could happen. One, I could just do a terrible job explaining the principles, which you would go, so what? The problem is, some of you might believe my terrible explanation and walk away with a really bad concept. I, I don't want that to happen. It's also true, too, that some of you might not be good listeners. <laughs> you might hear what you want to hear, <laughs> even though I might explain it well. Uh, you might only hear certain parts to justify certain behaviors and exclude the other parts. So I'm, I'm conscious of that. There could be the perfect storm of badness where I could do a terrible job and you're terribly listening. And, uh, or some of you might even listen to this and go, he is attacking me. 
he's coming after me. Please know that the subject is because this is the next verse, right? Uh, That's the one one great thing of of being an expositor is uh, my subject is the next verse. So I'm not necessarily picking on anyone, though I don't want to avoid the subject, and I understand that there's going to be some stuff that I'm going to say that might be hard to hear, but I think it's good that we hear it. It's good that we think about these types of things. So go with me to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. And this morning, the subject that we're not going to shy away from is this, is that we need to have a proper perspective of the things that we do, our practice. We need to have a proper perspective on pleasing the Lord, especially when it comes to obedience and a proper perspective of even what we're doing here, right? What we're doing this morning uh, or some of the other activities. We need to have a proper perspective. The issue in this text is not it's better to do righteousness than sacrifices, therefore don't do sacrifices. That's not what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying we need to check our perspective, and this is a perspective issue. This is a I'm valuing one thing over another issue. So Proverbs, 3, or Proverbs 21, verse 3, notice what it says. It says, to do righteous and justice is more acceptable than sacrifice. So we're going to learn two things from this text. First, we're going to learn the practice that pleases the Lord. This is going to be in the first part of the verse. So there's the practice that pleases the Lord. It's that particular lifestyle. And here Solomon describes this lifestyle, this fearing of the Lord, with two adjectives, righteousness and justice. That's the practice that pleases the Lord. That's the perspective we need to have. Righteousness pleases God. Then we're going to talk about the right perspective because this is not a this verse does not abstain us from doing sacrifices or doing things which are traditional or things that God commands but but it's a call for us to have the right perspective that pleases the Lord. That's the issue, right? So just remember in this chapter in 21 this chapter is sandwiched by by a couple thoughts that are unique to the book of Proverbs. It starts with the character of God and ends with the character of God. It makes positive, absolute statements. The book of Proverbs up to this point very rarely makes positive statements. It gives these principled statements. But here you have these positive theological statements about God. And so 21 begins in the first three verses talking about the character of God, and then it ends then with the character of God. And essentially when you look at these two and stuff in the middle, the idea is is a wise person submits to the Lord. That's what chapter 21 is about. A wise person submits to the Lord. A foolish person is rebellious. That's the point. These two bookmarks give us reasons why the wise submit to the Lord. So these first three verses are reasons why you need to submit to Jesus, why you need to submit to the Lord, why you need to submit to the Word. Right? So the first one in verse 1 is because God is sovereign. He is in control. He is the king of kings. That's it. The king says it. Not only is he the king, the king of kings, 
Not only does he demand and can exercise this incredible rule with all power, he does it. So what other choice do you have? Here's the king of kings sharing with you. This is what you must do. A wise person goes, if that's what the king of kings commands, obviously one that's this powerful, it would be kind of insane not to do that. Second, in verse 2, what we talked about last week, the Lord weighs the heart. We learned about this idea that you and I, we don't really know ourselves because we're willing to lie to ourselves. I will lie to myself, my heart will lie to me, and if I continue in sin, sin will continue to lie to me. I am in this hopeless position of being lied to and believing it. And last week I said, we don't need someone feeding us fake news. I do a good enough job telling myself a whole bunch of fake news about myself. Numerous times in the scriptures it says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So not only is there a self-deception, but then there's this willingness for me to self-justify myself. I'm clearly in the wrong, but I'm willing to justify the things that I do. So how does this help us in our argument of why do I need to follow the Lord? Well, because that next statement, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, he sees it. He sees it. He knows it. He, he's the one who's going to, he's the one that at the end that we have to give an account to. <clears throat> so why should, I, why should I be obedient? Because he already knows. He already sees. He already weighs. I can't look to myself and say, what would I want to do in this situation? And say, well, Jiminy Cricket said, follow my conscience and let that be the guide that's good enough for me. No, because I lie to myself. Now this one, we're going to see that just mere Outward appearance is not necessarily what God wants. And sometimes the most rebellious people are those who have the outward appearance of obedience. So that, that's what it is. Sometimes we have this idea of if I just show up to church, God will forgive the rest of the week. It's like this big gamble of, the scale. I do one good thing, and, and, and that, that offsets a couple bad things. That's not the case. That's not the case. Outward, outward adherence, mere, just merely showing up for an event is not good enough. Clearly, there's something more, and it's this righteous life and living a life of, of justice. And so we're going to look at this, this this morning. So notice the first part here in verse 3. When it says to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So the first question is, what does it mean to do righteousness? I guess we could go back and say, what does it mean to be righteous? Really, righteousness, the definition of righteousness means to adhere to a standard. So anyone that's righteous is adhering to a standard. There's a standard of what is right and what is wrong. It means to be ethical. For us as believers, the standard for what is right and what is wrong is God himself. God is that standard. That's what righteousness is, what God does. He is righteous because he's himself. That is communicated to us through his word, right? Now, 
we know that throughout the Bible, there's lots of different parts, and God has these different house rules at different times of how people relate to him, right? So in the Old Testament, there was a lot of sacrifices, and there was a lot of this, and this is how you relate to him. In the church, where we're at now, after the death and resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Spirit, there's a different set of house rules. And so righteousness, still adhering to a righteous standard, but some of that outward stuff looks different, okay? Some of that stuff looks different because there's different house rules. However, there is one common denominator throughout all of it. And here is the common denominator. It's found in the book of Romans. Go with me to the book of Romans. It, it, it describes this pretty well. Let's just go to chapter 10. Here's this common denominator that I think kind of goes through all of it. Notice what he says in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for, the, uh, for them is that they may be saved For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's the common denominator. No one is righteous. We're all sinners. We may even attempt to establish our own righteousness, doesn't work. Doesn't work. So the question is, how does one become righteous? In this passage, it's very clear. What does Paul say? For righteousness to everyone who believes. From Abraham all the way to the end, a person is declared righteous on the basis of faith. Faith on the promises of God. Faith in the Messiah. For us, it's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that alone. The Bible teaches that if I place my faith solely on Jesus, trusting him, what happens? I am instantaneously declared righteous. I'm imputed with Christ's righteousness. Positionally, before God, I am righteous. It's incredible. That's incredible. So how, how does anyone start to do righteousness? It has to start there. It has to start from this imputation of righteousness, right? That I'm given the righteousness of Christ. Once that happens, then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens. We might not feel it, but the Bible teaches us it's true. There's this indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit works on the life of the believer, is making the believer more and more like Jesus Christ. And as the Holy Spirit's working on us, what is he producing? He's producing righteousness. Remember when we spent time in the book of Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit? This is what the Spirit's doing. All of those things that the Holy Spirit's producing in us is righteous acts. I'm not doing this by my own power. This is something that is happening to me because of the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, contrary to what some may believe, I don't think the Bible teaches that we just go, all right, you do it, I do nothing now. I just kind of sit here on my couch, eat Doritos, watch college football, and it's going to happen, and I have to do nothing. The Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that let's do nothing and God will do everything. It does teach something, and go with me just quickly to the book of Philippians chapter 2. I know we spend a lot of time in this text. I know I turn to this text quite often. 
because in my opinion, this is one of the best verses that explains this reality of what the Spirit's doing, this reality of righteous living, this, this reality, that interplay between what, what the Holy Spirit is doing and what God's doing in my life and my responsibility as a believer uh, for, my, for my own sanctification, that process of being made holy, that process of righteous living. So just notice in verse 12, Philippians 2.12, he says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed. Now, I don't think the Philippians were perfect. (laughs) But I I think what it means is that they they normally had the characteristic or they were were mostly obedient, right? The the idea is that they were, from the moment that they placed their faith in Christ until the time that Paul's writing, if you were to say, is the church of Philippi essentially doing what is right? You you would say, yes. I, I think that's what Paul means here. I don't think they were perfect. But he says, you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more my absence. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, salvation here, I don't want to get too lost in the weeds and forget that we're still in the book of Proverbs. But when Paul uses the word salvation, he's using it in a greater sense than just that moment I place my faith in Jesus, and he's talking more than just that sense of being declared righteous. He is talking about salvation from the finished product, from, from, a, from a telescopic view far away, zoomed out, looking at the whole process of salvation. So it would include what God does at that initial moment of salvation. It ends when we meet Jesus and we are glorified and saved, there's this process in the middle that is part of our salvation of the delivering from the power of sin that we may call sanctification. So think of this. The moment I place my faith in Christ, positionally, I am declared righteous. That's it. Now, my life might not be as righteous as I'm declared to be, But before God, I'm declared righteous. I now have to live each day, and each day as I'm living, I have to make these right kind of decisions, right, based upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I think Paul's talking about here is this hard work of working out our salvation with Fear and trembling, this idea of the fear of the Lord, this awesome respect for the Lord, not, not wanting to hurt Uh, the Lord who is now our Heavenly Father, the sense of this is a serious task, okay? Hard work, serious. So so as much as it depends on you for your own righteousness, you have to work hard. You have to make those, you have to be obedient. You have to step out in faith and and obey. You have to confess your sins and repent of sins. We we all struggle with those, those things that easily trip us up, You have to deal with that. You have to spend time alone with the Lord, dealing with that, working with that, spending time in the word, praying that the Lord will deliver you from some of that. And each day, you should be more obedient, more obedient, more obedient. That's the work. It's a hard grind. It's hard work. Hard work. Because because it goes to the the depths of who we are. It's this constantly staying on it. and anyone who reads the scriptures, you understand that not only, not only is that just hard work by itself, but then you then have this 
constant nagging attack from yourself and from others that wants you to walk away from the Lord. It is a strong, it is a hard battle. But we don't do this alone. Notice the next verse. He says, for it is God who works in you. You see? So I am to work hard, but full well realizing that the big guns are, are working with me. It's God who's doing a lot of work. He's moving a lot of big boulders, right? I, I might brush away some of the dirt as he's moving massive boulders in my life, right? Making me more like Jesus. He's at work, okay? The Almighty One is working on me, making me more like Jesus. And notice what it says. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning, I think God, as he's working on us, as the Holy Spirit's working on us powerfully, he is changing our will and, and, and changing our desires so that we are more pleasing to him. And, and this is, for a believer, this is what it means to do righteousness, to be obedient, to walk by the power of the Spirit. So Solomon says, this is good. This is what God would want. In fact, in Thessalonians, what does Paul say to the church in Thessalonica? This is God's will. Your sanctification. That's it. You want to know what God wants for you? There you go. That's it. Your sanctification. Being holy. Yielding to the power of the Spirit. Being obedient. That's what he wants. And this is good. Now notice the next thing that he says in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 21, verse 3. We're still looking at this practice of fearing the Lord and, and, and looking at how Solomon describes this. So first is to do righteousness, and then he says justice. This is a, this is a loaded word in today's culture. Maybe 20 years ago, this might not have been so loaded because I know some of you are like, yeah, finally, he's going to talk about social justice. Go get him, pastor. I'm glad my pastor finally does it, so I don't have to do it, right? I'm sure there's plenty of people that are excited about that. And I don't mean to disappoint, but I think for us as believers, justice must be grounded in the character of God. What's, what does it mean to be just? Look at God. God is just. He's perfectly just. What, 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 uh, what does it look like for legal systems to be just? I don't know. What did God do? What did God say? I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about justice and legality and laws, but as far as I know, there's not too many lawyers and there's not too many lawmakers and legislators in this room. And I'm, I know where people listen from because I have an app that tells people where they're listening from and Nobody from Washington, D.C., or from anyone from anyone that's making decisions on a grand scale is listening to me. So even though it is important for us to have a sense of justice, because we're voting and we're citizens, we look to God. And, and as much as, as we probably need to learn some of that, I find that it's probably better, in our instant, or better for us to talk about justice in every moment of our life, this idea of making judgment calls. That's the idea here. Making judgment calls. Making judgment calls that are just, that are right. And these things, these judgment calls that we're making, they must be based off of the character of God and God's word. Right? That's what true justice is. And I find that if you're going to be biblical about this and have a biblical sense of justice... You will never find a home 
in the culture in which you live. Believers always have a sense of justice that is different from the culture. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that a believer looking to God will never fit in with the world system. There might be times where we intersect. There might be times where we agree. There might be times that we say, yeah, that's good. There there might even be times that, that, that they would agree with us. But to be purely biblical always means you're countercultural. You're never going to fit in. I have never known in the history of mankind of a society or a culture that was pleasing to God and didn't have syncretism and sin and was solely devoted, built the entire thing based upon biblical principles. There's never been a society like that. There will be one day when Jesus comes, but it hasn't happened yet. So our sense of justice, of what is right, what is wrong, our sense of discernment must come from God's word. It's a shame because sometimes we listen to what man says about justice and we just become drones for someone else. Not talking about what God wants, not talking about right or wrong from God's point of view. We have to be dedicated to Christ, dedicated to God, dedicated to the word. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, okay, I'm dedicated to this. So doing justice in a society means that I'm doing what's right. I'm doing the things that are right. I'm making discernment calls that are right. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of discussion about justice. And a lot of that justice, you know what it deals with? It deals with uh, pointing people to the law, pointing them to worshiping God. That's just. You know what else is? Uh, uh, Working hard, not defrauding people, not exploiting people. Uh, in, in Leviticus, it talks about having good business practices, making sure that all of our scales are, uh, you know, those, those grain scales are correct. Talks about not being partial to the poor or to the rich, right? It, uh, Leviticus 19 says, you shall, do, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, Right? That's a sense of justice, thinking the way that God wants us to think, having a sense of what is right and wrong from God's point of view, regardless of what we see in front of us. Another thing that, that talks about justice is not stealing land from other people, not changing boundary stones, not charging interest to people that we... Uh, in, in, not charging interest when we do loans, not taking everything that somebody has, right, uh, for a down payment. There's a lot of discussion about justice and that justice deals with those types of things. Now, God wants these. He wants righteousness and he wants justice. And a wise person wants to do these things, right? That's their desire. Even though they might struggle against doing these things, that's the desire of the wise. We've got to do this. Now, notice what Solomon contrasts this with. He says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. Now, he doesn't say, do justice and do righteousness and stop sacrificing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say sacrifice is bad. He just says, 
this one is more acceptable than the other. He's not even saying that the sacrifice is unacceptable. He's saying one is more acceptable. That's important to remember. This is not a dichotomy of, well, I'm going to do justice, but I'm not going to do those other things that God commands. It's the idea that God's word, the character of God for us as believers, Jesus, should so overwhelm us, and we should be so captured by the character of God and the ways of God. We should, be, we should love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and we should desire to honor and glorify him so that it permeates every part of our life and every part of our week. That's the perspective. So when I'm by myself, righteousness. When I'm in front of people, righteousness. When do I obey? I obey all the time, right? I just want to honor and glorify God with everything. That's the proper perspective. I think that's what he's getting at. I don't think he's trying to create this dichotomy between, well, we're more righteous people than we are doing sacrifices. At the time, they had to do sacrifices. That's what God commanded of them. He's not saying let's abstain from that. He's saying, look, there has to be righteousness. There has to be a right motivation behind what you do. The words of God have to permeate all of life. The glory of God has to permeate all of life, not just when you stand in front of people, when people can see you. This word for acceptable is really interesting. It has the idea of a choicer, and it has a choicer piece of meat. So it's, you either can have a burger or a piece of bacon. Bacon's the choicer piece of meat. Why would you ever do... And, and using this example, a bacon burger. Come on, guys, both. No, amen, that's right. <laughs> he deserves a raise. He said Amen. No, that's the idea. One's better, one's superior, one's choicier, one's juicier. One's a superior thing to another. So, so to do righteousness is superior to the sacrifice. And as we know, in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system. That's how you, deter- that's how you showed your repentance. That's how you showed your thankfulness. Every single follower of Yahweh in the Old Testament had to go to the temple and had to offer sacrifices. You had to do it. Right? That was part of being obedient to Yahweh. So then that makes then this a little bit interesting, doesn't it, this discussion? Because he's saying righteousness is superior to being obedient or the sacrifice. And you would go, but that's not the point, right? Because we know several times where there's people that offered sacrifices and it wasn't right wasn't the right sacrifice. Think of Aaron's sons. They offered a sacrifice from a wrong motivation. The Bible says it offered a strange fire. Nobody knows what that is, but I tell you what this does mean. It's not what God wanted. And what happened? He burned them up real good. They sacrificed, but, that, but God didn't want that. You think of, remember Uzzah? Remember the, the guy who, and David, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant out and they put it on a cart, which they weren't supposed to do, God actually gave a specific family to carry it on poles. 
really detailed way of supposed to do it, but they brought it out on a cart anyways. And, and as they're walking and everybody's dancing, and it's a big party. And look, we've recovered the ark, how great it is. And the ark begins to topple. And Uzzah, you could almost, you, you could almost see it in your mind. Because we've all done it, where we've seen something wobble, and we go, it's going to fall. We reach out our hands to stabilize it, right? might even just be a, a reaction, not even consciously thinking. He touches it. God strikes him dead. But that was a great sacrifice. It was a great thing he did, right? No. There was a specific way. We think of Saul. Remember when God told Saul to wipe out an entire village? Saul decided, and his leaders, his... his his military leader said, you know what? We're not going to kill everybody. We're not going to kill everything. We're going to keep some things. And when Samuel came, Samuel said, what is all of this? You're supposed to destroy everything. And remember what Saul's first response was? We kept some of the sheep to sacrifice it to the Lord. Isn't that great? We're going to give it, we're going to, give it to the Lord to honor and glorify him. And what was Samuel's response? That's like open rebellion, man. God told you exactly what he wanted. He he wants your obedience more than he wants your sacrifice. Think of the book of Malachi, right? Where after the second temple's rebuilt, all of the people were bringing sacrifices, but they were the the weak ones, they were the lame ones, they weren't the choice ones, they were keeping the choice ones for themselves. They were doing the sacrifice. God lambasted them. There's several examples of people offering things with a wrong motivation And just the mere outward appearance is not good enough. In the New Testament, Jesus, what does he talk about? He talks about the Pharisees that stand in the street corners and they make these long prayers, thinking that people, that they have this great reward in heaven because they're making these long prayers. Jesus isn't against prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. He was against that. He was against the doing something for the wrong motivation, not having the right motivation. Jesus was against just doing a ritual just for the sake of a ritual. And think about how insulting it is to God to say, I can live the way I want when I'm not around people. But when I get around people that are churchy, I start doing churchy things. And I declare my love for you when people are watching. That's insulting. That's incredibly insulting. I can't think of a ruder thing to do. And if you don't think it's rude, do this. Pick a family member. And just do that for a week with that family member. Completely ignore them for a week until you're in public. And then just dote on them. I guarantee you when you get in the car, they'll say, what was that? What was that? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Here's the problem. Our flesh is set on a default. And the default is we think God is just like us and that we can get away with such things. We can. Or we we, we have this default that the mere practice of something that God commands that's kind of public, just doing that thing is all that God requires. Or if I do that thing, then something greater will happen. Let me give you an example. 
I was in Idaho. I got a call from somebody, and they said, uh, I would like to be baptized. And I said, that's great. I'm all for people getting baptized. So I went over to the guy's house. My first question, which is always that I ask people when they want to be baptized, is why do you want to be baptized? Tells you everything you want to know about why somebody wants to be baptized. His response, because it will make me a better Christian. And he goes on talking about how if he gets wet, all of a sudden he's going to start living for the Lord. There's going to be all this stuff that's going to happen because he got wet. That's wrong. That has nothing to do with baptism. That is not the reason why anyone should be baptized. Is baptism commanded of the believer? Of course it is. And if you are a believer and you have not had believer's baptism, you need to. It's commanded. But I don't do the command simply just to appease God, or I don't do the command simply because I think if I get wet, God's going to like download all of this righteousness on me so that I have like this walking around righteous feeling. We do it because we love Jesus. We do it out of our love and wanting to honor him. And that baptism is that public announcement that we are now followers of Jesus, of this newness of life. We have that default. If I just do the thing, if I just do the ritual, if I just show up to church, if I just do this, that's the bare minimum, and God's okay with that bare minimum. The principle here is no. No. It is something that permeates all of life. Righteousness needs to be in all of our life, from Monday to Saturday and Sunday. So, yeah, this week has been an interesting week, especially with the Southern Baptist thing. I have a, I have a lot of friends who are Southern Baptists, a couple friends, let me put it that way. I have a couple friends that are Southern Baptists. It's tearing them up. Be in prayer for our brothers and sisters there. Um, some bad things are happening. But when I read that Al Mohler statement, that religious settings are a great camouflage, you now understand why I thought of that with this text. It is. It's easy for me to ignore a lot of deficiencies because I'm obedient on a couple things. And those couple things that I do take great effort to be obedient, and they're very public, but it's not the right motivation. It's not out of love for God. It's not out of honor and glorify God. It's not motivated by the right thing. As I think of this text, I think the response of our heart should be, Father, please forgive me for all of the times that I've done things with the wrong motivation. Forgive me for all of those times that I thought that just by merely doing an outward ritual, I was right with you. I think the response is, I need to be walking by the power of the Spirit. Right? That, that, that's the immediate thing. We need to be walking by the power of the Spirit, and we need to become more like, our, like Jesus Christ and yield to the Spirit who's making us more like Christ. That's the solution. The solution is righteousness, walking right. It's not more things, not more rituals, not 
having programs to get people, more people in the church. It's the idea that we all walk by the power of the Spirit. And as we walk by the power of the Spirit, then when it comes time for us to be obedient with those commands that he gives us in the New Testament, it's coming from the right motivation. I guarantee you, this next week, you will struggle with this multiple times. You probably already have today. Struggled with lots of, am I doing this for the right motivation? Am I doing this based off of walking by the power of the Spirit? We need to spend some time with the Lord. We need to make sure that we're walking by the power of the Spirit. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's, let's pray. Dear gracious Father, we are so very thankful for Jesus. We're so very thankful for all that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you will change our heart so that we're motivated to do the things that you want us to do with the right motivation. Uh, not, not, uh, be, uh, not think so little of you that you just will accept anything that we offer. Or, or, or that, that you're just merely uh, obsessed with the outward appearance of something. But, Father, that, that your spirit would, would really work on our heart, really cause us to be more like your son, Jesus. So very thankful for this time. So very thankful for my brothers and sisters who are here. We just ask that you would continually uh, uh, be working on us and that we would give you honor and glory. Give us safety as we go home and then allow us to come back tonight to learn more from you. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.